But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and it made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Today's sermon title is The Mirror Has Two Faces. Not to be confused, uh, not to be confused with the uh, much forgettable Barbara Streisand movie from 1996. Um, no connection whatsoever, and with Jeff Bridges, um, you probably would not have even remembered that there was a movie called um, "The Mirror Has Two Faces." If uh, if I hadn't told you just now, chances are you probably haven't even watched it. Once again, a very forgettable movie from 1996 with Barbara Streisand. Um, so it's, it's, it's the mirror has two faces, no connection to the movie with Barbara Streisand. Um, I kid, I kid. Um, but really, the message is called The Mirror Has Two Faces. And I chose it for a reason. When I started this series, I was doing my pre-research. In fact, um, this sermon today um, was split into three parts because after I got done with my first point, I realized I had enough pages to last like nearly two hours. So I tried to condense that for you this morning for the first point. So it's going to be three, um, it's going to be three sermons on chapter four here of Jonah. And I was doing my pre-research. In fact, I've been excited to preach this sermon from the beginning of preaching on Jonah because I was, uh, I was doing my pre-research and I came across this video from the Bible Project. Um, they have very good um, videos when it comes to understanding the Bible. And I was watching the one on Jonah and I was watching, I think they got, I'll be honest, I think they got some things wrong when it comes to the theme and such. But at the end, I thought they nailed it because they said what Jonah is for us in chapter four is a mirror. And I, as I was watching that, I said out loud, but this mirror has two faces. 
often when we think of Jonah chapter 4, and if I keep, if I say Noah, I apologize. I, it's like, I'm trying not to think of a purple giraffe. You just think of it. Um, Jonah um, chapter 4, many people will see the first mirror, Jonah's anger towards the Ninevites. But here's the thing about the book of Jonah, especially chapter 4, is this temptation for us now to condemn Jonah as though we've never done anything like Jonah. It is then for us to, is then to accuse and condemn him. But as we can accuse and condemn Jonah, we accuse and condemn ourselves. One pastor in his introduction um, to preaching on the entire book of Jonah, he starts off by talking about the racist he grew up with and the racists that are in his church and how damnable the sin of racism was. A funny thing happens, though, when you condemn Jonah is that you condemn yourselves. We look into the mirror. We don't see God looking back at us, nor the Ninevites, nor the pirates who didn't do anything. No, we see Jonah looking back. When we look at chapter 4, it is a mirror. In this mirror, we do not see what we want to be or what we think we are, but who we truly are. When we start examining the text, when we start understanding in a deeper way, in fact, we, we look at Jonah, we look at his hatred for the Ninevites, and we see it as so unjustified, just racist nationalism. But Jonah had more reason to hate the Ninevites than you do. I mean, just pick the group, Democrats, Republicans, Antifa, the KKK, whomever. When we look at this, um, we, we see something quite different. In the uh, book, and it, yeah, it was a movie too, but it was also a book, The Never-Ending Story. Our hero, Atreyu, and all of you are around my age still have trauma, undealt trauma when Atreyu's horse died, and I understand that. Um, the hero, Atreyu, he's going to the southern oracles, and he has different gates to go through, and the hardest gate to get through, it was a mirror, just a mirror. He's like, that's not so bad. And the person telling him is like, brave, strong men get to the second great gate and they run away screaming because the mirror doesn't show you as you think you are. It does not show you as you, as you appear, but it shows you who you truly are. So brave, strong men find out they're cowards and that they're weak. People who think they're so compassionate find out they're very cruel. And the hero, Treyu, he looks into the mirror and he sees Sebastian, just a frightened kid, hiding in a closet in his school, reading the never-ending story. As we read the book of Jonah, we are tempted to condemn Jonah instead of embracing maybe there's stuff in ourselves that is very much like Jonah that we need to also repent of. And as we, it's the funny thing, in our hypocrisy, we condemn Jonah when we actually see ourselves in Jonah, that God also loved Jonah. In fact, he does, in chapter 4, reach out to Jonah three times to repent. Once again, as we condemn Jonah and judge him, we condemn and judge ourselves. Jonah has more reason to hate the Ninevites than you, the, than you to hate the clan or Antifa members. It's true that God loves sinners in Nineveh, but it's also true that he loved the sinner he sent to Nineveh. Professor Uriel Simeon of the Jewish Publication Society and professor of biblical studies at Bar Alien University believes the overreaching theme is justice versus mercy. I would somewhat disagree with him. It's about justice kissing mercy. 
And we see that fully on the cross. The one who has come who is greater than Jonah has come to us. And on the cross, justice and mercy have kissed and have produced grace for all. He says the main themes are justice and mercy. And mostly that is right, but it's, it's for the murderer and it's for the hypocrite, for the prostitute and for the pro- prophet, for the murderer and for the manager. God loves hypocrites. That's something that we don't sometimes like. In fact, we, we, we sometimes have somebody that we can condemn. We go all for it. So we don't like the Pharisees, right? Those Pharisees, those, ra- ra- um, those rascals. We have kind of different classes of sinners. I was talking with a friend of mine. She was wondering why at college um, the RA was so rough, was so mean towards her and was really nice to her roommate. And her roommate was doing all kinds of things that she should have been kicked out of college for easily. But she followed the rules. And I told her, it's like, because when your roommate went to the RA, she painted you as a Pharisee, and it's okay to hate Pharisees. I think we see that so much in churches across today. We don't like somebody, let's get the Pharisee brush out. We paint them as a Pharisee, now we can hate them. Now we can condemn them. Now we can, as we read Jonah, see Jonah as irredeemable. And that same attitude was the attitude Jonah had towards the Ninevites. How about the Pharisees, the religious, legalistic hypocrites? Surely they are beyond redemption. Jonah wasn't beyond redemption. And the most famous verse spoken in the Bible that people know today, even if they don't even know it's in the Bible, was spoken to a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus. That verse, John 3.16, was spoken to a Pharisee. Nicodemus, though he was a Pharisee, he was the one who prepared Christ body for burial. Not Christ's disciples, not Christ's friends, but a Pharisee who he talked to one night. Took a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight, an incredible expense. This man, that many of us would have thought unredeemable, has a history of him as a Christ follower as well. Both in the Eastern Orthodox religion, the Catholic religion, he is a saint. Or how about the persecutor of Christians, Saul? If you knew Saul when he was persecuting the church, you would not say to yourself, man, here's a guy I want to witness to. Here's a guy that's going to become a Christian. He was, he called himself a Pharisee of Pharisees. Who says that today? Nobody's like, man, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. It's become such a byword. But he also calls himself the chief of sinners. The repentance that God had put into his life had changed who he was. So we should be so careful in who we label as unredeemable. Speaking of Jonah, the book of Jonah ends with a question. The question is from from God, and we are left to wonder what happened with Jonah. Did he repent? The last verse, verse verse 11, And should I not pity Nineveh? And, the great, and that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also, and also much cattle. So that's the question posed to Jonah, and we're left asking, well, what did he say here? We kind of miss the point with that. Really, it's the question is, what do we say here when it comes to the people we don't like, the people we see as our enemies? 
But just to let you know, we have a great amount of evidence that Jonah did repent. We have a great amount of evidence that he had a change of heart, that God did get through and soften his heart. And the biggest piece of evidence, other than the, the scripture doesn't say he repented of his wickedness, but what we do have is we have the book of Jonah. Who could have written the book of Jonah besides Jonah? There's no other Israelites around. He didn't have a scribe in the fish writing things down. He didn't bring an entourage with him. He comes alone. So this is Jonah's story. You know what I think is amazing about that? Is Jonah in his own story talks about all his own faults. You know, I'll hear people, you know, there's always two sides to a story. There's really three sides to a story. It's one person's, the other's, and actually what happened. Because we always have a way of editing our stories, of leaving out those things that we don't want to talk about. Maybe our tone of voice. I remember one time... um, in high school, uh, I was being sassy to one of my teachers, and he let me have it. And when I told people about it, I was like, you know, I, I, can't, what, I can't even remember what I said. But I know I, know I, knew, I, know I said it in a tone that was going to be offensive. So when he blew up at me, I would tell people in a different type of a tone. I mean, I wouldn't lie, but I was lying, right? Because I wasn't saying it the way I said it. Jonah, here's my faults. I wanted them all to die. I was okay with receiving the mercy of God in the fish, but I didn't want them to receive mercy. That's another proof of Jonah's repentance, because you know who does that? Those who've been forgiven. Paul the Apostle, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he boasts of his weakness. He boasts of his former sins that God had forgiven him for, and his self-esteem does not go down one one little bit because no longer is his esteem in himself but his esteem his esteem is in the lord so he can say do you do you are you tempted do i not also burn with temptation you can do that if you've received grace if you understand that you are forgiven and it's not based on your conduct but if you do believe it's based on your conduct you try to defend yourself The third reason we have hope that Jonah repented is in the Jewish holy writings called the Midrash. Now, this isn't the Bible. It's not inspired, and I don't hold it up to the same. But I think there's something powerful in that for us to consider. The Midrash does not stop with the question the Lord gives Jonah. It goes on, and let me read it for you from the Midrash section of Jonah. Then he fell on his face and said, Conduct your world according to the, to the attribute of mercy. As is written, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. And if that hits you as hard as it hits me. Because there's times, especially when I hear about something really awful, or I just see somebody being bullheaded, and I don't want to extend mercy. But then God saves that person, and I got to come to that same point. Then he, then he fell on his face and said, Conduct your world according to the attribute of mercy, as is written, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. He quotes Daniel 9.9. In the fourth chapter of Jonah, there are four mirrors for us to look into. Today we are only going to go over the first one. It is the mirror of injustice. And that's why I have this out here. Now, for the rest of the sermon, I'm going to try not to have this fall and then break it. That'd be bad. Um, The mirror of injustice, verses 1 through 4. 
The mirror of injustice, what we see in the first four verses of Jonah, it's probably four verses that we don't even really wish were in the scripture because it's very petty, it's very mean, it's very hate-filled, it's very admittedly hate-filled. He mocks God for his mercy, but you might be interested to know why he does so. We all have an inward desire to rage against injustice. And that's, that's actually put into us by God to let us know that we're sinners and we need a savior. But we need to be careful in our rage against injustice that we don't hate the person, but just simply the sin that they've committed. As your pastor, as your shepherd, God has given to me to defend you from wolves, of people who would use you as merchandise. So I am very passionate at pointing out wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets. And I was talking with a friend about this. I was like, but we need to watch our heart or else we might find ourselves hating them and seeing them as beyond redemption. You know, maybe we think of Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons. and We know that they preach a false gospel and that's very, very, very true but never in our passionate pursuit of truth and the gospel should we hate Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons. Let me tell you about Nineveh for a second and why Jonah hated Nineveh. It wasn't because he just had a hatred of their race. There was, there was reasons he did. They're not good reasons. In fact, the Bible makes that clear, right? That God shows mercy on whom he shows mercy. That Jonah, as he, as he is going through this, um, finds out something about God's character he didn't understand before. The rage against injustice is universal. Most of us, when we got into college, um, we had this incredible anxiety as we learned about the injustices of the world. And for many of us, we acted like nobody else knows about these injustices. It's just us. And we have so much problem with this. But everybody rages against injustice. Calling out injustice is dangerous in that we sometimes begin to hate the person and not the sin. Andrew Claven, the playwright, the um, author, um, says that anger, that, that anger is the devil's cocaine. I think that's probably one of the best metaphors I've ever heard. As somebody who's dealt with anger, here's the, here's the dirty little secret about anger. Anger feels good. It feels like righteousness. I'm right and they're wrong. And I need to tell them. I need to flip over these tables. Somebody needs to do something. It's going to be me. And if we don't watch it, we get so blind in our pursuit against injustice that we realize that we are shouting, crucify him. The people on that day thought they were doing justice and they thought they were fighting against injustice. The Ninevites, the injustice of the Ninevites. The Ninevites were brutal in a brutal time. The, um, Nahum the prophet will speak words against them. I'm going to read for you just a portion of Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, P-R-E-Y. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing swords and glittering spears, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless prostituting of the prostitutes, grateful and of deadly charms who betray nations with, with their whorings and peoples with their charms. It almost sounds like the prophet is talking about World War II era Germany 
How many people, as we call each other Nazi for no reason at all, would be willing to go to Nazi Germany to preach a, a, a message of salvation? The Ninevites, the Assyrians, they were the capital of Assyria. Assyria was known to be expressly brutal to the point that when Babylon took over after Assyria and then Persia and Rome, they were seen as merciful That's how brutal they were. They would torture people for entertainment purposes. Jonah's own people had already suffered under the Ninevites, under Assyria. They had attacked the northern kingdom before this, before this, and they took who they took who they could and scattered them among the nations. It would have been better to die than to go into the exile for a Jewish person. We'll read about that in the Psalms. By the water of Babylon, we sat and wept when we considered Zion. And the Assyrians, they had already done this. And then it was prophesied that the Assyrians would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in which Jonah was a prophet. If they were to be destroyed at this moment, then Israel would have had more time. The northern kingdom would have had more time to repent. And then God possibly could have relented. But Jonah going to the Ninevites and giving them more time ensures that Israel, the northern kingdom, will be destroyed. So Jonah is used by God as his instrument for the destruction of his own people in a roundabout way. Starting to understand maybe Jonah's mindset during this time. I was listening to a Jewish man explain Jonah, and I thought it was very enlightening as to why Jonah, one, would want to flee God's call Two, want to die. And three, why he's angry with God in verses one through four here. I'm going to give his illustration here. Imagine you are walking through a forest with your best friend. You're just walking, you're minding your own business. All of a sudden, some guy comes out of nowhere, maniac, starts beating your friend up, beats him into a coma. And then the guy stops. Police come, they arrest him. It's time for the court trial. And you're standing before the judge and the judge says, because nobody else was there, it's your word against him, I'm letting him go. Oh, the injustice, right? And then worse than that, the judge comes up to you afterwards and says, I want you to take him out for a drink and become friends and really just smooth this all over. Wouldn't that be terrible? Wouldn't you wonder? It's like, what an unjust judge. Jonah, it was much worse than this. Knowing the crimes of the Ninevites, he was, used to, he was used to, as all are, that justice isn't always in this world, but of course it should be in the next. But when God wakes him up and tells him to go to that city and preach against them, and he knows in his heart that they would repent, his idea of the universe shatters because now they won't even receive justice in the next life. For him, this is even worse than the story I told you before. In the story I told you before, the attacker will receive justice from God's throne, even if he doesn't get it from man's. But Jonah is told that the people who will and have been murdering his own countrymen will not even receive justice in the next. The universe has gone mad, and he can't understand how the judge of all the world will not do right. We'll see this in the media every now and again. For instance, the the trial of Brock Turner. If you're not familiar familiar with this, um, I'm sorry to have to tell you it. Um, He took advantage of a a gal who was passed out. He admitted to it. There was witnesses. 
He pleaded guilty, and the judge gave him no jail time. Everybody raged at this. So understand, that is where Jonah is coming from. That is why in verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. The first verse tells us this in two words. The first word, not a hard one to translate exceedingly, but the second one is translated differently between our different translations. Mine will say displeased Jonah. I'm not sure what yours say. Um, but the, probably the most correct would be he found it exceedingly evil. He found it exceedingly evil that God spared Nineveh. The word, the word for evil here, for displeased, um, it's one of my favorite Hebrew words, and many of you probably know this one already. It's rah. It's that one that sounds like you're growling at somebody. It, was, it wasn't so much about morally or ethically evil, but it, was, uh, it could be used talking about a destructive force like a hurricane or tornado would be evil. An earthquake could be evil. Of course, great deep and sorrow. But the, the, the literal meaning of ra means to be shattered to pieces. The word shalom means to be whole, like a wall is whole. That, I mean, that, that, that brings so much more. Instead of just peace, it's being whole. I have everything I need. I'm good. I'm secure. Everything makes sense. Jonah's shalom has now been shattered to pieces. The universe doesn't make sense to him anymore. There really isn't a good word in English that corresponds to It means more than just displeased or evil. It can also mean something dangerous, like I said before. But the literal meaning is to be shattered to pieces. What happens with these people has shattered the way Jonah saw the universe to pieces. God's mercy isn't for a people who would do what these people have done. That is Jonah's thoughts. It doesn't make sense that they don't have to pay for their sins. This is exceedingly rah. And it has shattered Jonah's mind. He shouldn't have been surprised. And he wasn't surprised. Remember, he says, what does he say here? And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when when I was yet in my country. So he knew that God would relent if these people repented. He knew that because another prophet, um, Jeremiah, said in his own book, in Jeremiah 18, 7, if at any time I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warned, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Verses 9 and 10. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, verse 10, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Jonah is living in a time where his own people are the last part of that verse, and these people are the first part of that verse. Jonah's prayer, Jonah's prayer Almost sounds kind of nice on the surface. And he prayed, um, and he prayed um, to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my own country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That sounds very nice, but he doesn't mean it nice. He's taking God's own words in Exodus and shoving them in his face. 
It's an accusation. God is more hated for his grace and mercy than he is for his justice. These two words, um, these two words contain the breath of compassion of God. The masculine Hanunun and Raham. And Jonah goes on to say that God's steadfast love is abounding. The word for his steadfast love is hasad, hasad. Hasad is another one of my favorite Hebrew words because it's in one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Not that I really have favorites because they're all my favorite. But one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22. For the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For the Lord's hasad. Hasad is, comes from the word in Hebrew, womb. It is the affection, the unconditional affection a mother has for her child. In the context of lamentations that, yes, we are destroyed. Yes, we are paying for our sins. But God still loves us as a mother loves her child. And Jonah throws that into the Lord's face when he says that you are bounding in compassion for Israel's enemies. This is a feminine word in more than one way. It refers to the affection a mother has for her child in the womb. This shatters Jonah because this was God's promise for his people. And he did not want to see it as for a different people. I've said before, we all have Ninevites. We all have people in our life that maybe we don't like, or maybe if we're really honest, we despise. A college professor of mine was a, well, is a Jewish man, ethnically. He grew up Jewish in New York. Kind of a fun tidbit, there are more Jewish people in New York than in Israel. So he grew up um, Jewish, and the Lord saved him and uh, called him onto the mission field. And he called him to Saudi Arabia. Jewish man from New York going to Saudi Arabia. And, you know, honestly, like he first, he was very excited. Yes, Lord, send me wherever you go. I will go. Saudi Arabia, wherever. Let me go there. And he gets there. And after the honeymoon period, he gets into that phase where a lot of people get into where you start realizing that they're, they're real people. Like, like they have a lot of faults, just like everybody else. And it was more than that. He began to hate them, and he said that in his heart he would say, hell is too good for these people. And God worked on his heart, and he changed completely around. But I want you to know that these things creep into the heart of even the faithful. He talked to, he talked to us about what happened when he got past the honeymoon stage, that the thought would occur to him, hell is too good for these people. So here's our question to think of. What is a group of people that we despise? Well, pastor, I like everybody. Really? How about people who blast you on social media? Do you like them so, so a lot? I know I don't. Sometimes I'm in an online argument. I just got to stop because I'm not disagreeing with their argument anymore. I'm disagreeing with their humanity because they're really starting to bother me. So I got to stop and I got to repent. So maybe you don't despise them. Maybe you just strongly disagree. Well, how about, let's get some real talk here. What about pedophiles? but you feel differently about that. Imagine if God sent you to NAMBLA. NAMBLA is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, and it's exactly disgusting as you imagine. God sends you to them to preach to them, to preach to them and live among them. Or how about the Ku Klux Klan? There is a man 
who to my knowledge isn't even a Christian, and he reaches out to the people of the KKK. He'll go there, and they will call him all kinds of names because they don't even believe he's human. His name is Daryl Davis, and I forgot to tell you, he's a black man. And he will go to Klan rallies, and he will, his mission is to, do, is to befriend Klansmen. Man, I got to tell you, even as a white guy, if God told me that, I'd be like, can you send me somewhere safer like Afghanistan or Iraq? I mean, like, it, it, it's not something I would want to do. But as, as, a, as a boy, he was in a parade, and he was in this Boy Scout parade, and as they were rounding this corner, there was a group of people throwing things at him, calling him the names you can imagine they're calling him. And he comes home and he asks his parents, why, why were they, what was wrong with them? What was I doing wrong? And they had to explain to him, you didn't do anything wrong. They just hate you because of your skin color. And he asked them the question, even as a boy, how can they hate me without knowing me? So when he grew up, he became a semi-famous jazz musician and blues musician and um, got to this point where he's, he's still wondering, how can people hate me if they don't even know me? So he starts with, um, as a kind of a fake interview, one of the leaders of the Ku Klux Klan in his area. And it's a funny kind of story in which he's interviewing this guy. He doesn't know that Daryl is black until he gets inside the room. Daryl had, a, uh, had a, a chest of ice with like pop and things like that in there. And during, their, during the initial time they're talking, the guy has a gun, by the way, out in the open. And he tells him he has a gun, you know. And they hear, they hear this noise. And so both people, they look at each other, eyes go wide. Here it comes. This is, you know, about to get shot. And it was the ice melting in the cooler, and they both had a laugh. Guy was the leader of the Ku Klux Klan in his area, and Daryl actually befriends him. And it gets to this point where the guy actually takes all of his Klan vestments, or whatever you want to call them, and gives them to Daryl because he doesn't want to have anything to do with the Klan anymore. Because he knew Daryl, and he loved Daryl, and how can he hate somebody who, know, he would, how he, who he now knows? I find it incredibly heroic. And Daryl Davis, he has collected over 50 Klan outfits from people who have left the Ku Klux Klan because he decided that love was greater than hate. And all he wanted to do, his big, his big message is just, how can they hate me if they don't know me? And we have a much greater message than that. Over this past year, I have heard people rail and rail and rail against racist but I haven't heard very many people talk of a God who can wash away your racism, who can heal you, who can remake you, and who loves you even though you sin against him. He could make a change in your life. What I think is sad about this story is that over the last year, I have heard a lot of people condemn condemnation for racists, which is well-deserved. It is a sin. It is the sin of partiality. But not, but not a one of these preachers I have heard have done anything to try to preach the gospel to these people. It's almost like they believe hell is too good for them. To tell them about the love of Christ that drives out hate and fear and of a God who died for racists too. Daryl just wanted to know why someone could hate him without knowing him. We have a much better message and we keep it to ourselves. Maybe the reason is that it would be exceedingly to us if they actually repented and we have to call them brother and sister. In, verses, in verse 3, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I, I, it's very hard for me not to try to make fun of this because as somebody who's worked 
with teenagers, I've heard so many times, I just want to die. You're going to be fine. You just have to clean your room. I think it's more serious for Jonah than that. Um, In verse 3, Jonah echoes another prophet as well, Elijah. When he was being hunted by Jezebel, he also said to the Lord, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life from me, for I am no better than my father's. And he laid down and slept under a broom tree. Incredible, incredible um, symmetry between the two prophets. They both fall down, sleep underneath a plant after they've come to the end of themselves. Now, many people will say, many people will make the assumption that Jonah is going away from the city, but he sticks around the city because he hopes that their repentance will not last too long and God will destroy them anyway. We just really don't have any reason to believe that from the text. What makes a lot more sense is that he is just waiting for God to make, have this make sense. He's despondent. He feels like his whole view on life has been a lie. Now he wants God to make it make sense. And if any of you have ever been in that despondent state, you know that you say things that you don't mean. Maybe we shouldn't judge God's prophets as more harshly than we judge ourselves. Aren't you glad that even when you are acting like a jerk, God doesn't give up on us? We see in this story the length God goes to to save this city. Look at the length he goes to to save his prophet. Sometimes in church, we are focused on bringing in new people, and we neglect those who are already here, who are hurting, disobedient, or just confused. This is one thing I think is just really sad. You come into the church, everybody's welcome, come on in, come on in, and then you're here, and you're having problems in your life, and then you got Christians around you who said, you made your bed, now sleep in it. How dare you question? How dare you have issues? How dare you deal with things over and over again instead of, you know, having the tenderness that even God has, even though it's a, it gets to be a bit of a harsh tenderness, but it is still a tenderness towards this prophet. This is a different kind of question in the next verse. Verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? How I read verse 4 is very confrontational. I don't know about you. When I read verse 4, I read it in this tone. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Makes me think of the time I was counselor in the treatment facility. And I'd have one of the boys and they'd say, this isn't fair. And I'm like, do you really want to have this conversation? No, sir. (laughs) The grammar of this verse, though, leads to a much different conclusion. You know, I, I, I tend to read this as, as God slapping Jonah down. The grammar of this verse reveal, reveals something very different. It is better understood as this. Try to understand what, I'm, what I am doing here. Judge if it's truly right for you to be angry about this. There is part of God's character Jonah just isn't understanding. And God will reveal that to him. Jonah does not yet understand the atrocious mathematics of the gospel. Philip Yancey is the one who coined that term. The first mirror we look into is our own tendency for condemning those we see as unjust. We see villains and heroes, but who is the hero here? It's not Jonah. It's not the Ninevites. It is only Yahweh. And there is only truly one hero in anything, and it is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jonah sees the city's, the city's need for mercy and grace. They need chassad, 
but he does not want them to have it. What about us? Are we willing to extend that towards others? How about for yourself? God loves you. Do you get that? He doesn't love you because you're so much smarter or prettier than anybody else. He does not love you because of your potential. That's probably one of the most, I don't know how to put it, demeaning things to God's nature when we try to make him seem like he's some kind of salesman who just sees the potential in you to exploit. He doesn't love you because of what you'll do in the future. He doesn't love you because you have the right theology or you're smarter. He doesn't love you for yourself. He loves you for himself. And that is why nothing can separate us from the love of God. If he loved you for yourself and your own attitude, your own actions can separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. But because he loves you for himself, nothing can separate us from his love. He loves you because he loves you. And he also loves your enemies. And the question for us as we read Jonah, this first part of Jonah, do we? Or do we only love those who love us? I'm going to be ending right here. Worship team, you can start coming up. But uh, one story, and I'm glad I'm, I'm doing a video and not reading it to you because I don't know if I could hold, I don't know if I could keep my composure. There's a woman named Corey Ten Boone. Her and her sister lived through the Holocaust to the point where they thank God for the fleas in their, in their um, barracks. Corey Den Boone survives the Holocaust and goes around the, the world preaching the gospel. Here is, I'm not going to say much more about this. I'll let her say it. Um, go ahead and play that video, please. Make sure the volume's up. It was some time ago that I was in Berlin. And there came a man to me and said, Ah, Mr. Boom, I am glad to see you. Don't you know me? And suddenly I saw that man that was one of the most cruel aufseers in concentration camp. And that man said, I have, I'm now a Christian. I have found the Lord Jesus. I read my Bible and I know that there is forgiveness for all the sins of the whole world, also for my sins. I have forgiveness for the cruelties I have done. But then I have asked God's grace for an opportunity that I could ask one of my very victims forgiveness. And Fräulein Tambom, will you forgive me? And I could not. I remembered the suffering of my dying sister through him. But when I saw, when I experienced that I could not forgive, Suddenly I knew, I myself have no forgiveness, but I was not able, I could not, I could only hate him. And then I took one of these beautiful texts, one of these boundless resources, Romans 5.5, 5, and thank you, Father, that your love is stronger than my hatred and unforgiveness. That same moment, I was free. And I could say, brother, give me your hand. And I shook hands with him. And it was as if I felt God's love stream through my arms. You never touch so the ocean of God's love as that you forgive your enemies. Can you forgive?
No. I can't either. But he can. When we belittle forgiveness, we see it as a human effort. We make excuses for the person, but true forgiveness is when I embrace the depth of hurt and I unleash the cage that I put the person in. If we think it's a small thing for Jonah to love the Ninevites, we think all things are small things to realize, though it's the power of God that caused me to love my enemies. Who are you not forgiving? Who are you holding in the cage? Who are you despising? How are you not believing in the atrocious math of the gospel? The worship team's going to lead us. And that's what I want us to do during this last song. For us to, for us to ask the great physician of our hearts to do surgery, to find areas of unforgiveness that we are holding on to. And I believe by the grace and power of God, you will have the power to forgive and to bless.